there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so happy you press play. If you like fashion, I mean really like fashion, or maybe you're passionate about sewing or styling yourself and your friends, and well, guess what? That is exactly what happened with my next guest, who is a designer and the founder of tailored clothing for professional athletes, celebrities, and pretty much anyone who really cares about looking sharp. But before I introduce you to Mitch Perguson, who, by the way, is a cross between James Bond swagger and Ralph Lauren style, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that brings you an exclusive window every Monday into what episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. It couldn't be easier. And while you're there, just scroll down a little bit on the homepage and you'll see how we've organized all the episodes we've dropped to date. They're organized by career. So hopefully you can find exactly what you're interested in. And if not, then please hit me up on email at Andrea at time, the number four coffee.org and let me know which profession you'd like me to feature and I will do my best to find a dynamic professional to interview in that field. Now, my wonderful Java junkies, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Mitch Ferguson, a young entrepreneur and the founder of Stitched by Mitch, without a doubt, one of the best dressed men I have ever had on time for coffee. Since 2014, Mitch has started two companies that are built around his love of aesthetics and culture. He designs bespoke suits for men, in addition to other items of clothing and dress shoes and gorgeous leather bags and phone accessories, while at the same time growing brand presence and creating multiple streams of income from social media. By the way, bespoke, in case you're wondering, is just a fancy way of saying made to order. Mitch has a fantastic Instagram account, which is not only featuring some of the professional athletes and celebrities and lawyers and doctors and business folks that he dresses, but he's also prominently featured as his own model, showing off the gorgeous clothing he's making. Mitch, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am ready to go. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And I know you have already been super busy today. You were telling me before we started this interview that you were up in New York. You're back in North Carolina now. So what time were you up this morning? I was up this morning around 4 a.m. and did my little workout routine at my hotel. And then after I was done with that, got about two cups of coffee to all the listeners. I get my coffee black and then I put about a teaspoon of CT oil and a teaspoon of grass-fed butter in my coffee. And you can thank Tim Ferriss for that concoction. And I've done that ever since I heard his podcast. It's been great for me in the sense that I don't usually eat breakfast, but it kind of confuses my body in the sense that I have some fats in there. And then it definitely wakes me up as well. Amazing. And so you were up at 4 a.m. Is that the usual time you get up? How early of a riser are you? I would say that I would like to get up usually every day around 6.30. When I'm traveling, I like early flights rather than midday flights because I can still sleep on the flight. If I'm tired, I can get work done before the day. Usually I'm pretty up by then. And I actually do subscribe to Wi-Fi on American Airlines and Delta, and I have all those accounts. So I usually knock out a good bit of work on my flight. But yeah, I like coming back early in the morning. But usually day, it really just depends. My schedule is very flexible. I'd say it flows based on the season. Fall and winter is crazy for me. Summer is more low-key or right before big holidays. It's also very busy. So some days I'll work 5 a.m. to 1 a.m. Other days I might get up at 7 or 8 get a workout in, knock a couple things out, and then go to a networking event. 
I wanted that context and hearing that you started your day at 4 a.m. and will probably be going until the wee hours of the morning. That just helps set the backdrop for our listeners of the kind of work ethic and drive that you have as a young entrepreneur. Mitch, I want to start out our interview today by reading a quote that you have on your Instagram feed. It says, style is a way to say who you are without having to speak. So if we could see you right now, and P.S., I did do a little video exchange with you before we started this interview, so I've seen what you're styling today. But could you please share with our listeners who don't have the opportunity to see you at this moment, unless they're on your Instagram feed, but what would your outfit today and your general style be telling us about you? I would say my style today, and it really depends, you know, so I love, I love suits. I love tuxedos are personally my favorite thing to wear. And I've actually started kind of a trend to wear tuxedos whenever I want, not necessarily just for a black tie event, just because you can. I would say today, and, and usually it's based on function, but also who I'm trying to impress, who I'm trying to draw attention to. So for example, today I'm wearing a flexible stretch seersucker fabric. It's very breathable. It's a perfect shirt for a flight. It's very cooling and it can move around. It it has some give in case I want to take a nap and it doesn't wrinkle, which is awesome. So if I do want to take a nap or if I'm moving around a lot, it stays looking just as clean as if I just got it from the dry cleaner. Mm-hmm. So I'd say functionality is when I travel. I'm wearing a pair of stretch dental jeans, very nice jeans, very fitted, but very flexible. And then my boots are Chelsea boots because as you walk through the airport security, you have to take your shoes off. And these are great boots, polished black, so I have a nice shine to them. And I can just slip them off and put them right back on. And then on top of that, I have an overcoat just because it's cold in New York. 35 degrees when I arrived in Charlotte today. But yeah, I'd say mainly anytime I'm going anywhere, I want to dress to impress and I want to make sure that everything I wear is functional and is also fitted because if it's not, then it's really not made for me. So what is that saying to people who see you? What is the message that you want them to be getting about who Mitch Ferguson is? I would say that the main message that I'm trying to get to people about who I am, one, I'm, I'm individualistic. I think individuals are beautiful. And I think there's so many people around the world that maybe just get caught up in trends. And not that trends are necessarily a bad thing, but I think style and clothing is such a beautiful way of showing your favorite colors, dressing for a season, adding layers. And I think there's an art in that. And so with some people, it could be simple. And when they dress simple, that you know that might be what they want people to kind of know them as, as someone who's simplistic that does not get caught up in certain things. But with me specifically, I think it's a way of bringing back old memories. One thing when I ask people when I first sit down with them is, you know, where they went to school, what their favorite color is, because a lot of times when you're wearing certain clothes that have maybe a a color association with a positive memory, you're going to be more confident. So I'll incorporate certain colors. Maybe it's their favorite university. Maybe it's their hometown colors or their state colors or anything like that. And I'll always try to find out that information and, and surprise whoever I work with because the power of color is, is a crazy thing. And the psychology behind it and, and, and texture, I really think it can impact your mood. And I think it can also impact the way that people see you. I totally agree. I also think that colors and especially the ones that resonate with you and probably the more cheerful, the brighter colors do put you into a better mood when you're wearing that just makes you feel more upbeat. I completely agree. Completely agree. And I think there's a way also, and I think some people get caught up in this, there's a way to be elegant and simple. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. And for people that maybe don't like the suits and tie kind of look as much, there's still a way to express yourself in color and without color. There's so many types of art, you know, that are featured. And one of my favorite places to go is DC, just because of all the museums that feature art and abstract art. And you can have beautiful art that's black and white. You can have it navy. You can have it colorful, like a shanty, Brazilian shanty artists, if you will. 
I think clothing really is a form of art. You can really exude your personality through that. Well, I want to get more into your clothes in a moment, Mitch. And I'm going to want to talk with you also about your time as an undergrad at Appalachian State, which you graduated from just a little while ago in 2015. But first, I would love to know, Mitch, where the idea for Stitched by Mitch came from. Absolutely. Basically, the whole kind of story, I guess, began. My mom is a very colorful woman, and she's always dressed to a T. My grandmother dressed to a T. My sister dresses to a T. And so I grew up in a very colorful household. Each room had its own different theme, was painted a different way, had animal print on the wall here, old-fashioned signs there. And I grew up in a very unique home. So growing up, around women that knew how to dress and that were also very intent on displaying color, my environment molded me to be curious about that. And as I grew older, I played sports and I played basketball. That was my best sport. I actually played at Appalachian State. And I think being around the athletic culture, there's so many fun shoes, basketball shoes you can wear. And there's a huge emphasis on team colors and team spirits, no matter where you are. And so I think The combination of nurture and nature, being around basketball and being around the culture that cares about what they look like and then also growing up around it, it really just influenced me to be curious about it. And so we can talk about this later on. But when I first started the company in college, that's basically how it started was those two things combined. And as I kept getting curious about certain trends and certain fashion, I was like, hey, I really like this. And people eventually started asking me to style them. And so at first it was Style by Mitch. And that was my first name was just Styled by Mitch. I'd help a lot of friends dress. I'd pick out outfits for them. I was kind of the friend consultant stylist in college, if you will. And then one of my friends mentioned to me one day, they're like, hey, if you continue to do this, it develops into something cool. You could say it's Stitched by Mitch because you're actually designing the clothes that you're making. And so he recommended that one day, and I thought that was great. I liked the alliteration and the rhyme, and I mentioned it to a couple of friends, and it really just stuck. It's so interesting to hear that because I was going to ask you, what would happen if your name had been John and not Mitch? I mean, it just works out so perfectly. (laughs) Your name rhymes with the word that paints the picture of custom clothing. Absolutely. And my first name's Edward. And so I actually had this other joke that if it wasn't stitched by Mitch, it'd be threads by Ed. (laughs) And so (laughs) I thought Mitch went a little bit better. I always think of Ed's as 40-year-olds. I don't know a younger person named Ed, maybe Eddie, (laughs) but I go by Mitch mainly because of that. So you could have gone in a whole bunch of different directions with respect to clothing and fashion. And you could have been like Damon John, who started out in his fashion world hawking t-shirts, basically. But you went more the haute couture style, more (laughs) of the really detailed worksmanship route. Why did you do that? So I took a design class, which really was the beginning of me pursuing this as a business idea. I took a design class and The class focused on divergent thinking, which is basically multiple ways to solve one problem. And it was a beautiful class because I think so many times we grow up in school systems where there's only one right way to solve a problem. Maybe there's an algebra problem and the teacher demands that you show your work and it has to be solved this way. And I always thought that was dumb, just frankly speaking. I was always the guy in middle school and in elementary school and high school that wanted to find the other way to get the right answer in a more creative way. And so the design class was the first one that really embraced that way of thinking for me. And so once I took that class, I just started thinking of all the possibilities, something that I could do. And I think with t-shirts, and there's no knock against t-shirts, I think t-shirts are great. They can still be a form of self-expression. I have always had an infatuation with luxury. It's funny you referenced James Bond and Ralph Lauren at the beginning of this interview. And those are people that I've always admired. I've always admired the George Clooney's, the actors, the Ocean's Eleven tuxedo in a casino or casually dressed in Lake Como. But either way, it was still having a GQ look, whether you were formal or casual. And so 
that always attracted me. And as I studied more about the art of bespoke suits, the need for them, especially within professional athletes and, and my connections in those, and then honestly, just my coaches who could afford nice things, constantly talking about the difference between this brand and this brand and what they liked and didn't like. It was basically a perfect storm. And I just always admired that kind of stuff. And so I got my first suit. It was a black velvet tuxedo. And I got it for my junior year formal in college. And once I put that thing on and it was cut in my first custom suit that I made and designed and I wore it formal, everyone just could not stop talking about it. And I just remember how good that made me feel. So I think the suit is the most powerful thing a man can wear. And I wanted to be behind that. Well, when I referenced Ralph Lauren on the designer side, that was my way of giving you the highest compliment that I could think of. He just has such a style and a point of view. And that also comes across in the clothing that you design, Mitch. I would love for us to talk a little bit more about the designing and the the actual creation that you're going through to make a bespoke suit. How long does it take? So it depends on, first of all, what your budget is, what you're trying to make. So I offer a lot of fun additions, if you will, to anything that I make for anybody. That could come in the form of a custom fabric where I screen print either a, a phrase or a symbol that's unique to you. If Some people probably remember the Conor McGregor suit that he wore before Manny Pacquiao. And those have letters and there's a certain company that makes that specific fabric. I try to take it a step further and not just add leathers, but change the pattern. So it's not just a pinstripe. It could be a window pane and, and use symbols for that. And I actually just did that for Josh Gordon of the New England Patriots. His nickname is Flash because he's, he's very fast. He's very powerful and he can strike very quickly. And, and out of nowhere, he can impact a game just like that. So I'll have a little short film I'll release on my Instagram in a couple of weeks about his suit specifically. But we basically took a lightning bolt, duplicated it, and made it into a wide stripe chalk window pane, and then also a chalk pinstripe suit that you'd see a Wall Street banker wear. It just had pinstripes and in the form of a lightning bolt. And so that was a very unique suit. But that was just, that's just an example. So custom fabrics, custom liners are huge right now. Maybe it's a picture of your favorite golf course on the inside. Uh, a picture of a vacation, a favorite book, a favorite quote, favorite movie. So I've done a lot of linings like that where you can open up on the inside of the jacket and show something unique. And then personally, my favorite is just playing around with the integrity, if you will, of classic clothing and fusing it with modern clothing. So maybe I'll make a jogger suit where it's a fitted jacket, a fitted pant, but the pants are joggers instead of just a classic suit. Maybe it's an overcoat that I made for a guy in Los Angeles. Los Angeles doesn't get very cold, but he still wanted an overcoat. And he's very into anime. So we made him an, a mandarin linen overcoat in, in bright raspberry. And it had no lapels. It was made out of linen. And I don't think you can find that stuff online. So <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> that was a very fun project. And then the last part is just you know little tidbits here and there. Custom embroidery, tricolored buttonholes. Those are a lot of fun on the lapel or on the sleeve. And then, you know, custom buttons are really fun as well. So I'll do some custom buttons, really custom anything. So I think the best way that I could explain what I do and the offerings I have is I like to be the thought of as the guy that people come to for unique things that no one else can make. I'd say it takes about six to eight weeks. And then like a standard Navy suit would probably take about six weeks. But any custom orders, six to eight, sometimes eight to 10. And I usually try to give people the option of where they want it made. They can get it made in Italy, made in USA, or made in China if it's more budget conscious. And so give us a sense, Mitch, of the range of prices. So what would kind of a, just for sake of argument, like an off-the-rack bespoke suit, so simple, no new, you're not creating a screen print, you're just using fabric that already exists, you're making the suit all the way on up to all the bells and whistles that you just laid out. 100%. My suits start at $1,295. So a basic Navy, kind of your starter suit would be $1,295. And then they go up to about $25,000. 
And how many of those 25K suits have you made over the years? <laughs> to be completely honest, I have not sold many of those. I have, however, sold probably about 10 to 15 suits over six to 7,000 in the past couple of months. And then I've had plenty of orders. It's kind of shocking to some people. I've had plenty of orders above $50,000, which is pretty insane. Unbelievable. You mentioned people can decide where they want to have their suit come from. I guess the fabric, is that what you were saying? Whether it was France or Italy or Spain or... 100%. I'd say that when I say I'm a designer, so I, I basically put everything together. I choose which fabrics that clients can pick and they want. If it's something like a custom order, you know, I'll, I'll do the photo printing. And then basically what I do and how I'm different than your typical clothier or suit salesman is I take everything from beginning to end. My business partner who I work with, we basically create a finished garment measurement for everything that we make. So for example, most suit salesmen will come measure you. And so they'll say, Hey, for example, let's say a guy has a 40 chest, they'll measure his chest and then they'll take a a 40 suit and adjust that 40 and tweak it. So it fits the wear where is with me. Say if your chest is a 38.635, well, I had the knowledge and the wherewithal to know how to cut the fabric based on that measurement that looks best for you and inadvertently create sizes for every single body part. So it's think of it like a puzzle. I'll take your wrist size, your bicep size, your half back, your chest, and combine it all into one. So with me, my size is Mitch because everything, every size is custom across the board. Whereas I'd say most people will take a pre-existing suit and adjust it. Everything with me is cut from scratch. And are you doing the actual stitching? Are you putting all of those pieces of the puzzle together? Or do you then send all of those measurements, send all of the details and the information to others who are actually putting the fabric together? So I am sending, I outsource all the suits that we make just because it's not sustainable for me to sit down and and make a suit or make a shirt. But that being said, I still am very specific with everyone that I, I work with in terms of how to cut the fabric, what the person's profile is like, how this would best sit with them. And then during a first fitting, I chalk up and pin the suit so that it fits them perfectly. So I'd say it's a little bit more in-depth involvement, whereas your typical suit salesman will just kind of submit something and let someone else figure it out. I am very hands-on with the fit, the drape, the cut, and that's from beginning to end. And then where are those people who are actually doing the cutting of the fabric and the sewing of the pieces together? So you can get it made either in Italy you can get it made in China or you can get it made in USA. And kind of the cheapest suits are made in China, but with Italian fabrics. So I only sell the highest end Italian and English fabrics and then certain fabrics which I create. And then the next step up would be American made and the most expensive would be Italian. How did you find the people that you are working with in those three countries? When I first started out my business. I did a pitch contest in college. So my original idea was custom suits for college kids. $300, $400 custom suits, taking on the Joseph A. Banks of the world from a price standpoint, but adding much more value in terms of the fit and the quality. That was where I started. That started through my first business partner. He went on a study abroad program called Holland Fellows at Appalachian State. It's a 20-year-long program in the sense of it's been around for 20 years. And it's basically the top business students at Appalachian State go to China, understand supply chain, understand basically everything there is about international business, and stay there for about a month, whereas the other students from China, the university we partner with, they come to Appalachian. And at the very end of the program, everyone goes to China and takes tours of Alibaba's factories and and major companies over there. And so the program has been around for about 20 years. So it was kind of a known thing that you could bring 100 bucks, 200 bucks and go to China. And they had a relationship with a local tailor that you could get nice quality suits for pretty cheap. So 
he brought that back, said, hey, I want to learn how to measure these people. If you teach me, can we do this back in the States? And so that's really where it started. And we were selling suits for $200, $300, and people loved it. And so that's where the idea originated. So I did a pitch contest where we pitched this business, and we ended up getting second place. And I met two guys that came up to me after that had been in the business for about 10 to 15 years. They basically just said, hey, we have some family connections, very powerful ones in the fashion industry. We'd like to stay in touch and see what you guys develop, see how you grow. And so after a while, it came to a point where when I was 23, 24, I didn't really want to sell suits to college students anymore. I wanted to get into the athletic culture, the professional world, the businessman world. And so once it came time to pivot there, I contacted these guys and they basically opened up their book of connections to me. And then everything else has been made just through that, through trade shows. And it's cool in the sense that the internet's so powerful where if you market yourself a certain way, regardless of what you do, if you're good, people are going to find you, they're going to reach out to you. And it's the exact same way with the apparel world. So I have manufacturers to this day, probably six or seven a week reach out to me and maybe I'll try them for a sample and see how well we communicate, see how I like the cut, see how I like their turnaround and all that. And if I like it, I'll give them a chance. And if it continues to go well, we'll develop that relationship. And so in a nutshell, that's kind of how everything gets developed. So where was the pitch contest that you participated in? The pitch contest was at Appalachian State. Their program is amazing for entrepreneurship. And I was fortunate to be a part of the first entrepreneurship class there. It's actually turned into a really big deal. First, I think there was only about 15 businesses that pitched and maybe only two or three of those survived. I want to say there's like 20 to 30 now after five years that are still functioning today that started an apps entrepreneurship program. And and the the leader was a guy named Eric Schlinker, who did wonderful work at IBM, left IBM, built another company and sold that company to IBM. He retired at Appalachian, which is a beautiful place in the mountains to help raise his kids. And he, after seven years of retiring, he got the itch to get back into the business and get back into starting something new and art of creation and building businesses. And so he's really been the mentor for about 30 to 40 entrepreneurs coming from App, which has been a really huge blessing in my life, as well as anybody that could be a part of that program. Absolutely. I mean, for anyone out there, no matter what profession you are in or you want to get into, finding those mentors is key. And I didn't really have a mentor outside of my dad growing up. I never had the courage really to go up to people I didn't know and say, hey, I'd love to learn more about how you did what you did. And would you mind helping me out? Because I always felt like I had to act like I already knew it, (laughs) which is so silly, right? Especially when you're starting out as a young person in a new industry, nobody really expects you to know everything. So I think that's fantastic that you've developed those relationships, Mitch. It's been very beneficial. So I would love to know more, and I'm sure our listeners would as well, about how you started recruiting your celebrity clientele, which includes professional athletes. You've mentioned a couple. Could you share some of the folks who are your clients and how you started building your roster? I work with a number of athletes around the country, and one of them, Doug Middleton, who's the safety for the New York Jets. Brandon Chubb, who's a linebacker for the Carolina Panthers, DJ Reader, and Carlos Watkins, who are both defensive linemen for the Houston Texans, Josh Gordon, who's a wide receiver for the New England Patriots, Bubba Wallace, and Corey LaJoy, who are both NASCAR drivers, a lot of actually college coaches as well. So I work with Jeff Capel, Jason Capel, who are both big-time college coaches, Wes Miller and Jim Fox, who Wes is the coach of UNCG. He played at Chapel Hill. And then Jim Fox was the head assistant for Davidson for a long time, actually helped recruit Steph Curry to Davidson. He was my second coach at Appalachian State. It's been a cool group of people to work with for sure. It really just starts with relationships. I've been blessed that when I played basketball for Appalachian, Jason Capel was my head coach, and he's actually been a wonderful mentor to me, along with Kellen Sampson, who's actually head assistant at University of Houston now, who's a top 25 program. And I played for those two guys. And then Justin Ganey, 
who is an assistant at Arizona now. And then my strength coach is the strength coach for the Buffalo Bills. So App is not really known for basketball. It, it doesn't have a history of basketball. But when I played, there really could not be a better combination of guys who have either played professionally or been in the business and just really care about their players. And so that's where it started. I think when someone like that gives you a chance, you just show them that you care and that you want to work hard for it. Eventually, they're going to be comfortable trusting you to treat their friends or family just as well as you treated them. And so that's really where it started. I made Jason's ACC championship suit last year when he was an announcer. Then I'm working with him and his brother this year for Pittsburgh. And then App actually has a very good football program. And so a lot of the guys that I work with came from Appalachian. I just had relationships with them there because I took class with them or played pickup basketball with them. You're making me think, Mitch, about another episode that I dropped on Time for Coffee with a woman who is a life coach, and her name is Lauren Handel Zander. And I highly recommend that Java Junkies listen to that episode if they haven't already, because one of her biggest pieces of advice for young people who are still at college right now is to worry less about getting an A in whatever class it is and get a B in that class and instead get an A in building relationships with their fellow classmates, with their professors, as you've said, with their teammates, with whatever other adults are on campus, because that will be the foundation that you're going to be building on. It's going to be the well that you're drawing upon professionally and personally for the rest of your life. Absolutely. I'd say that the biggest thing in life is relationships and Learning how to add value to those relationships, whether it's, I mean, really any capacity. I think everyone has a form of value that they can add. And if you show your network that, that you can add value to them in a way that's beneficial to them as well as their network. And you also care about them as a person and you just, you put their priorities first and you treat them respectfully and you treat them right. I think the sky's the limit really on what you can do and what you can accomplish. And I've been very blessed to have a lot of accomplished people around my life. They've either given me a chance or multiple chances, and they've challenged me to not be afraid to fail. And when I do fail, to admit it, get better, and not make the same mistake twice. I'm going to want to talk with you, Mitch, about a time you failed in a few minutes. But first, could you please give us a sense, take us into a typical day in the life of Stitched by Mitch. What are you doing? I know you spend a heck of a lot of time on the road visiting your clients, but what is a typical day like maybe when you're in North Carolina versus on the road? And what's a day like when you're on the road? So I try to get anywhere from three to five appointments a day. Those could be anywhere from touching base, follow-ups, drop-offs, lunch, breakfast, and then hopefully their fittings. The best thing about getting a bespoke suit is once we have the fit down, it's just a snap of the finger. So I have clients in Seattle, I have clients in Los Angeles and Sacramento and in New York. And so now that once I get through the initial process of getting their fit perfectly, all I have to do is send them looks. A typical day for me is following up. I probably have a book of about 450 clients. And so I touch base with 20 to 25, pretty much a bi-daily basis. And so each week I try to touch base with anywhere from 50 to 100, whether it's hey, you know, what's the future look like with your schedule? Do you need anything? Do you need any tweaks? Or have you lost any weight? What big plans do you have in the future and stuff like that? So a typical day, three to five appointments, a couple of those being fittings, a couple of those being refittings. And then the rest of that is networking events. I'd say when you're a luxury brand, and I like to use the example of maybe it's Bentley, maybe it's Lamborghini, maybe it's Ferrari. You don't really see TV advertisements for any of those brands because the product speaks for itself. I don't really advertise on anything other than Instagram. Maybe it's Instagram or LinkedIn, but you know, I've never paid for an advertisement. I've never done any of that. And I think what I have to do from that is make a great product, serve people the right way, but then be a walking advertisement and go to either networking events, cocktail parties, socials, charity events. So 
I go to anywhere from three to five networking events every week. I'd say my biggest expense other than travel is charity events, donating to charity events, whether it's, you know, a custom suit or a custom shirt, and then just paying for tickets for the charity event. And how much time do you put into the getting the right photographs and styling yourself? Because I mean, let me say, I hope Java Junkies are going to go check out Stitched by Mitch, his Instagram feed, because Mitch is a good looking guy. He produces gorgeous clothing. It's almost like you're looking at a fashion spread of a menswear magazine. And I'm just wondering, is that the vibe you're going for? Absolutely. I think when you see beautiful pictures, and I've been blessed as well to have a lot of friends who are very prominent in social media. One of my buddies, Brandon Bryant, runs a blog called Wall Street Paper, you know, that has hundreds of thousands of followers. And He's very fashion forward. And then I have another buddy named George Laboda, who has an Instagram called Atlas and Mason. And he and his buddy, Blake Scott, along with Brandon and my buddy Devin, are some of the top male bloggers in the world in the sense of their following, their fashion, the content that they produce. And so they've all really challenged me to step my game up. When I first started, I'd post like a basic picture that maybe it was decent quality, but it wasn't the best quality. And they've really challenged me in that aspect that remember that at all times in person, as well as online, you are advertising yourself. And if you're not putting your best forward online, how are people going to give you a chance in person if they haven't met you before? And so I really took that to heart. And they've taught me some tricks of the trade, how to edit a photo, lighting, certain angles and stuff like that. And so They've taught me a lot in that aspect. Could you give us just a few tips that our listeners could kind of bring into their Instagram feed to take it up to the next level? So I think that, first of all, you want to have a similar theme throughout your Instagram. You want to show people within the first five to six photos when they come to your page that they know what you do. And if they don't, then you've got to change that. So whether it's a product or me wearing a suit or someone else that I'm styling and they're wearing one of my suits. I want people to immediately come to my page and say, okay, this guy works in custom clothing and he sells really nice stuff. And so the way to show it's nice is taking high quality photos. iPhones are great. You know, I have an iPhone and it does the job sometimes, but first I would invest in a nice camera. That is probably your best investment. And if you can't find someone who is trying to build their portfolio photography, maybe post an online Craigslist app. Maybe post on your Facebook or your Instagram and say, hey, you know, people that are trying to build their portfolio of photography up, I'm looking for someone to take pictures of me wearing this or a product. I'd like to use your services. And I'd say a huge emphasis on your theme that people know what you do when they come to your page. And then the other part is quality. I'd say the last part is consistency. If you post one time a week, that's not enough. You're behind. It's almost like a show. If The Office only released an episode once a month, it wouldn't probably be as popular as it is today. So they constantly gave people great content. They added value. They made people laugh. And then they do the exact same thing next week. And I'd say with Instagram or any social media app today, you need to be posting a couple of times a week. And not just, not just with photos, but you need to be adding value. You need to be giving information that is valuable. So some of my posts will be how to style a suit for a certain event. What colors go well together with your profile? You have brown hair and pale skin. Cool. You should wear this. What's coming back into fashion? What is a classy way to go to a business casual event? How to dress up for black tie, mistakes not to make, stuff like that. And so I think once you have a good aesthetic, people know what you do, then you add the information, people are going to keep coming back for more. And that's really how you create a brand. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. So Mitch, I want to flash back to when you were at Appalachian State and you majored in entrepreneurship and management. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I did not actually. So when I graduated, I did because I had already started the clothing company as a junior. When I first went to college, I definitely did not. I was first a finance major and I wanted to be like my buddies and they told me I'd make good money and I'd be in business. And I liked the idea of being in business because businessmen make money and they can have nice things. And so when I went to college, I really didn't spend too much time thinking about it. The older I got, the more I realized that 
I have one life to live. If I'm going to do something that everyone else is doing that's normal, then I'm going to have a very normal life. That's the last thing I wanted. And so that design class I referenced earlier really challenged my way to think about life in multiple ways in terms of solving life problems in the sense of happiness. How can I be happy in life? And there's multiple ways to do that. And I think there's principles around that that really stuck with me. One, it's doing something creative. Two, it's being involved with people. Three, it's being in charge of my own schedule. And then four, offering something that's valuable that people will create memories behind. And so I think life is really about creating memories and and adding value and, and, and building relationships. And I figured this out about junior year that what being in custom clothing and developing relationships and sports, it was a perfect storm of what makes me happy and what I wanted to do. A hundred percent. And I think the only thing I would add, not to dispute anything you laid out there. It's just to say that what makes someone happy and what makes our listeners happy is something they have to figure out for themselves. It may be that they want more structure and they want to work for a company and they don't want to have to worry about the ups and downs that go with being an entrepreneur and a startup entrepreneur and all of that stuff. It may be that they want to work part time and maybe they can swing it financially to do that. So a hundred percent, but lead with figuring out what your happiness is and what it will require to help you get there. Absolutely. Mitch, I want to ask you, about your extracurriculars. You've already alluded to your time playing on the basketball team, but I know that there were other things that you were involved in as an undergrad, including being chapter president of Sigma Nu, of your fraternity, and you also had a really cool internship. And in particular, what I want to hear, if you would maybe share with us how the being a chapter president, your basketball experience, and the internship experience that you hustled your way to actually helped you hone skills that were valuable to you after you graduated as a professional in the working world. I watched an episode of Shark Tank. When I watched that episode, I just thought it was so cool. This is my sophomore year of college. And I was like, oh, this, this job is so cool. You're getting to invest in companies, and whether it's the person pitching the business, you're getting on a show and you're getting a lot of marketing from that. Hearing about the structure of what the sharks were willing to invest for how much and what they wanted back and the back and forth of that, that just always intrigued me. And then the product side was always fun to hear about. I really admired Mark Cuban. I just made it a point, you know, after I watched one of the show, I was studying in the library and I said, hey, I want to get in contact with him. So I searched for his email. And I found his Dallas Mavericks email, which is a public email. It's not hard to find. And to my surprise, three days later, he responded. We started up a conversation, and he basically had come out with a new app called CyberDust, which is called Dust Now. He said, hey, I'd like to get thoughts on what Appalachian students think of this. It's WhatsApp meets Snapchat, safe messaging, it disappears, all that. And so I took it with a grain of salt, and I said, okay, if this is really Mark... I'll download the app and we'll play around with it. I'll give you my thoughts. And he immediately responded, no, this is me. And so I kind of was just sitting in the library, like here I am, you know, <laughs> talking to Mark Cuban over email and it was actually him. And so I told some of my friends, they're like, no, no way. There's no way it's actually him. And we kept talking and I kept trying to get people on the app and I ended up continuing to get a ton of people on the app. And so what I did was to prove that I was adding value to him was I got 150 of my friends to download the app and write my name on the reviews on iTunes. So he saw every single review. Mitch Ferguson got me to download this app. Mitch Ferguson got me to download this app. And so he actually ended up emailing me and he said, hey, I see what you're doing. The purpose, you know, this is not to get people to put your name in the review, which I thought was funny. And I said, yeah, but you see what I'm doing, right? I'm hustling. I said, yeah, you are. Keep it up. You can consider yourself an intern. And so I kept hustling and three months later, he flew me up to New York and I interned for him there and for Cyberdust there and I helped put on the Steve Nash Celebrity Soccer Tournament, which was an amazing event. Steve Nash's foundation helps benefit inner city kids with educational materials. And so it was a crazy life experience. So I emailed Mark Cuban. I hustled. I worked hard. I was creative. I flew to New York and got to hang out with celebrities and as a 21-year-old. 
that was such a unique experience. And it just made me think, you never know until you try. And that's really what kicked off, I think, everything for me was you just never know. So, Mitch, I want to ask you a question that I try to ask all time for coffee guests. And usually I ask them about a time that they struggled professionally. But I know for a fact, because I listened to another podcast interview that you did in which you said you wished that successful entrepreneurs that you had looked up to over the years had talked less about how they became successful and more about the times they failed. So I want to ask you about a time you failed in your professional life and what lesson you learned in the process of getting to the other side. When I first started out in terms of pursuing businessmen, lawyers, and professional people when I was only 21, 22, I lost sight. And I had actually a very, very great mentor of mine based in Atlanta named John Hearn challenge me on a couple of the things because I actually used him as my first very successful businessman that bought something for me. I was 21. I drove five and a half hours to go measure him. And it's this executive C-suite guy in Atlanta that just kills it, does very well. I presented the fabrics. I measured him. I thought I did great. I didn't really know what. He just was very frank. He said, hey, this presentation's not very impressive. I think you should work on this. The communication over the course of the order was not good. Silence breeds negativity in a service world. Remember that. The way that you guys structured the conversation. I felt like I was selling you guys on how to sell me. And so it was a very humbling experience. He's very gracious and it was a pretty cool story. He told me straight up, he said, Hey, I know that you don't have a lot going on right now, but how much do I need to buy so that this trip was worth your while? I just kind of looked at him like, I can't believe he's asking me this. And so I told him, you know, what I was hoping to make from the trip to cover expenses. And he spent almost double that. He was so gracious. And so that taught me multiple things. One, he challenged me on presentation. Two, he challenged me on communication. Three, he challenged me on delivering what I said I offered. And then fourth, that when I hopefully get to a position of his and I have someone else that's in another situation like I was at the time, to teach it as a learning experience, a learning experience and to challenge them to have a call to action to get better and not just tell them what they were terrible at. And so that was a very, very valuable failing experience for me because it was no doubt a failure. It was an embarrassment. Oh, what a wonderful story, Mitch. Thank you so much for sharing that. My final time for coffee question is if you could go back to Appalachian State and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now... What advice would you give yourself? I would say to start failing earlier and to not want to blend in earlier. I'd say I delayed my development for about two to three years because I didn't do what I wanted to do. I did what I thought would be a good idea based on maybe what my family wanted me to do and what my friends wanted me to do. And I remember I came to a very pivotal decision my junior year and I got offered a chance to play on the basketball team. I talked to about nine or 10 different people. They said to me, I don't think you should do it. I think you should stay involved with the fraternity, work on your professional development, really just focus on enjoying college and getting grades and focusing on what's after. Because if you don't plan on being a coach, why are you going to play basketball? And I thought about what they said. The more I thought about it, I was like, that'd be the normal thing. It's a very normal way of thinking. I listened to a couple podcasts that were very challenging in the sense of being different. It was perfect timing. And I just remembered thinking to myself, it's about time that my life has been pretty normal up to this point. If I want to change, I have to make decisions that are not normal. In addition to that, I should not listen to people specifically in terms of that have not done what I could do or what I'm about to do in terms of playing basketball, I shouldn't take advice from people who have not had the experience I'm inquiring about or that are not where I want to be in the future. And so when everyone told me no, I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to play basketball and it's not going to be easy. And it wasn't, but I know that it's going to be 
one of the better decisions and better memories that I will ever have in my life, whether it's either hard or easy. It was very hard at first. I didn't touch a ball the first six weeks of practice. I was only defense. I had to get in great shape and I couldn't be late. You know, I was basically the Rudy of the team, if you will. And that actually became my nickname was Rudy. The, the relationships and how close I am to my coaches and my teammates now, you know, after going through a lot, that was a pivotal decision of my life to change. I'd say up until this point, that's been the most significant decision that I've ever had. So it's trust your gut. 100%. Trust your gut and think about what pivotal decisions, how you make them and when you make them, what kind of impact will they have? Not immediately, but five to seven years down the road. And I feel like if I had taken more creative classes earlier on instead of finance classes, which I do not care about, I would probably be even better at what I did now. But also at the same time, it also made me hungrier later on. So yeah, I'd say the advice once again would be go after what you think is yours and really own it. Don't put one foot in and one foot out. Go after it. And if you fail, go after it again. If you really, really like something and if you really want to be happy, the only way to figure it out is to try. Mitch, this has been such a delight I have learned so much. I want to thank you sincerely for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I hope all of our Java junkies will start following you on Instagram at Stitched. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-E-D by B-Y Mitch, M-I-T-C-H. You are a remarkable guy. I totally get why Ladan wanted me to interview you. Just really, really enjoyed our conversation today. I am so grateful that you had me on and I look forward to developing the relationship in the future. And it's very cool that you're doing this podcast and challenging millennials to think differently about the workforce and also the world that we live in and they can impact it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.